Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Joe Aletto, and I'm the production manager of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform encompassing finance, technology, and geopolitics. SALT Talks is a series of digital interviews with the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. And just as we do at our global SALT conferences, we aim to both empower big, important ideas and provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts. We are very excited today to welcome Director John Brennan to SALT Talks. John Brennan served as Director of the Central Intelligence Agency from March of 2013 until January of 2017. From January 2009 to March 2013, Director Brennan was Assistant to the President for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism, shaping the U.S. government's counterterrorism strategy and coordinating Obama administration policies on homeland security, counterterrorism, cyber attacks, natural disasters, and pandemics. Director Brennan began his government service at the CIA, where he worked from 1980 to 2005 and specialized in Middle Eastern affairs and counterterrorism. He served as CIA's intelligence briefer to President Clinton, chief of staff to then director of Central Intelligence, George Tenet, and deputy executive director. In 2003, he led a multi-agency effort to establish what would become the National Counterterrorism Center, serving as the center's first director in 2004. He retired from the CIA in 2005 and worked in the private sector for three years. Mr. Brennan currently is a distinguished fellow at the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School, a distinguished scholar at the University of Texas at Austin, a senior intelligence and national security analyst for NBC and MSNBC, and an advisor to a variety of private sector companies. If you have any questions for Director Brennan during today's talk, please enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge, as well as the chairman of SALT. And I'll turn it over to Anthony and, to um, begin. In, in, in addition to me, John, I've got Robert Wolf with us, who's our partner on strategic worldviews who was one of President Obama's economic advisors and was the former CEO of UBS America, Americas. Uh, it's great to have you on. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I got to ask this question because this is my typical first question. I'm going to turn it over to Robert in a second. Uh, but you've had this storied career. You're an amazing patriot. But there's something about you that we don't know that we can't find from Wikipedia. And I know you've buried a lot of your stuff because you're in the CIA. But I want you to tell us something about your upbringing that we couldn't find from Wikipedia and how it created or helped you to create the career arc that you ultimately went on, John, uh, and Director Brennan. <laughs> well, Anthony, first of all, thank you so much for the invitation to participate in this conference today. Really, really uh, a privilege to do so. Uh, yeah, I grew up right across the river from New York City in Hudson County, New Jersey. Um, went to uh, elementary and high school over there and then went to Fordham uh, College in the Bronx. And so I was, uh, grew up in the hard scrabble streets of uh, you know, Hudson County and really enjoyed that, that upbringing. But one of the things that I relate in my memoir, Undaunted, which is going to be released tomorrow, uh, talks about uh, my uh, Catholicism uh, early on and my interest in becoming a priest. So until I was about 13 or 14, I was determined to uh, enter the priesthood, but also my ambition was to become the first American Pope. Again, I grew up in a, in a very religious household and uh, I was on that track. Uh, and then when I got into high school, I guess some other things diverted me from it. But uh, I had always hoped to be the first American Pope, uh, especially when I was younger, it was Pope John the 23rd. 
who was uh, instrumental in terms of reforming the, the Catholic Church. So that's one of the things that uh, I think uh, probably is not known in, in Wikipedia. All right. So I'm so happy I asked that question as a fellow Catholic. So I have to ask this follow-up question, if you don't mind. What was your name? What were you going with? Were you going to be a Pius? Were you going to be a, uh, a John, a Paul? What, what, what was the name you were thinking of? Uh, well, my middle name is Owen, and that's our family name. So I don't know if, uh, you know, I, I could, in fact, get the approval from the College of Cardinals to, to become Pope Owen the first. But uh, it was one of the things that I had right, thought you see about. That? I mean, this is, this is new information, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, this is, this is why we do salt talks. Look at this nugget of information we pulled out of uh, our former CIA director. So let's talk about Undaunted, and congratulations on the book. And uh, I see it there behind you, and I, I have to confess I haven't gotten it yet, but I look forward to reading it. And tell us why you wrote it. Tell us why we should read it, sir. Well, in the preface of the book, I talk about the two principal purposes. Uh, one purpose is to try to correct a lot of the mischaracterizations and misrepresentations that are in the public arena about what the CIA does, what the CIA's mission is, and also what happened while I was CIA director and a CIA officer. Uh, and there's just so much information out there uh, that I think people take as gospel. And I wanted to at least provide my rendition of uh, events and developments uh, that took place during my career. But more importantly, I, I wrote this book in order to give American citizens and especially young Americans a better sense of what the national security establishment is like, what it's like to have a profession in intelligence or law enforcement, and to give a bit of a behind the scenes look at how fascinating, how challenging, and also how rewarding that life of public service is. And I would like to be able to convince young Americans who have tremendous skills and intellect and, and talent to really consider public service as uh, part of their future career. This country faces enormous challenges in the 21st century, and we really need the best and brightest that this country has to offer to help keep their fellows, this country and their fellow citizens safe. And unfortunately, I think the chaos and confusion in Washington over the last several years has really discouraged a lot of young Americans, the, the students that I talk to at universities, it has discouraged them from filling out that application for FBI or CIA or for the foreign service exam. And I tell them this is exactly the time they should be doing it. And they should disregard all of that political nonsense that's going on in Washington, because it's really important that this country stay strong, stay prosperous and secure in the future. And we need them to join this uh, public effort. You, you, you talk a lot in your career, and I'm certain it's in the book about our foreign adversaries, but also the fights that we're having domestically. And so, if you could give us a uh, unclassified threat assessment right now, what are some of the greatest threats to America at this moment, Director? Well, clearly there are a number of uh, challenges on the international scene. Vladimir Putin continues to look at the U.S.-Russia relationship in a zero-sum game, as a zero-sum game, and believes that anything he can do to bring the United States down is to Russia's uh, betterment. Uh, we have issues with China, clearly on the trade front. We need to grapple with, you know, this growing Chinese behemoth on the international scene, both politically, economically, and militarily. Uh, Iran, terrorism, proliferation, these are all issues. Uh, but this is where it really requires the United States to have a much more united and unified approach 
to dealing with these world challenges. The United States, I'm a strong believer in American exceptionalism, not because we're better, we're smarter than anyone else. It's because we've had tremendous good fortune having this wonderful large country with bountiful national resources, natural resources, you know, large seacoasts, navigable rivers, arable land, much more than any other country. And we're also the melting pot of this global community. And so I think we have exceptional responsibilities on that global stage. And if we're going to continue to fight among ourselves and be polarized and have demagogues try to further divide us, we're not going to be able to fulfill the responsibilities we have on that global stage. So I think the greatest threat to us right now is the internal divisions that we have experienced, especially over the last several years. Donald Trump is not you know, the sole reason for that by any means. Uh, he's more of a symptom of this polarization within our country. And I really do think that we need to find a way to try to bridge some of those differences and not be as internally divided as we are. Before, before I turn it over to Robert, who has a set of questions for you, and then we're going to take questions from the audience. I have one last question for you on this section. It's about our differences, uh, because you and I, I think, see the world very similarly. We have great love of country, and we see the unity and the togetherness of the country more than we see our separation. Uh, and so let me ask you, two, it's a two-part question. What is causing the separation internally? And then how are our adversaries exploiting or making that separation, either through the use of social media or other things that they're doing, let's call it active measures, to divide us even further, uh, Director. T t tell me what you think is the system, symptom, excuse me, and the impact on the system, and then how is it being exacerbated from the outside? Uh, well, clearly we're dealing with a lot of challenges uh, in this day and age, uh, and Americans have a lot of different views on climate change, on taxes, on social issues, on uh, abortion. And so I, I think there there is a need for this debate within the United States because we're not going to be unanimous on these issues. That's fine. But I think there is a lot of um, effort to try to fuel the animus that exists between these various groups. And as you point out, this, these internal U.S. divisions are fueled not just by the domestic demagogues, but they're being fueled by the countries abroad who want to see the U.S. in disarray that want to see the chaos and confusion here in the United States really undermine our ability to fulfill our global responsibilities as well as to grow economically, politically, and militarily. So, you know, when I look out in the 21st century and issues related to, for example, the digital domain, the cyber realm, as you point out, there's a lot of information operations underway to try to shape the perspectives and to distort the facts and the truth of that the American people are going to be you know, receiving. And this is an effort to try to further divide uh, us. We saw what happened in the 2016 election. Uh, the Russians were not just trying to undercut uh, Hillary Clinton vis-a-vis you know, -vis Donald Trump. They also were trying to divide the Democrats between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. So again, that division within the United States here really uh, helps a lot of these foreign countries, these foreign adversaries, who again are trying to diminish the tremendous capability, the tremendous potential of the United States. And this is where I do criticize our politicians in Washington on both sides of the aisle. I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I served for six presidents, three Democrats, three Republicans. They all took their jobs very, very seriously. 
And although I disagreed with the policies of every one of those presidents, they all approached it with the appropriate um, you know, attitude uh, and seriousness that the position deserves. Unfortunately, Donald Trump has not done that. And that's why I've decided to speak out in the second retirement of mine. And I wish I didn't have to do that. And Anthony, I just want to say thank you to you uh, to speak out, speaking out forcefully and honestly. I wish more people would do that because we really need to get this country back on track for all Americans, not just for a particular group or political well, party. Well, I, I do appreciate that, sir. You, you, you ruined my punchline. I was, just, I was just gonna say that I'm very shy and introverted, but now <laughs> that you've thanked me, I have to accept your thanks. And, uh, and as you know, it's not easy for either of us, but we both love the country. The first time I met you was actually at a Hank Greenberg lunch. I think we were over at the university club after I had just gotten back from Afghanistan. And once you come back from Afghanistan as a civilian and you see the magnitude of our problems over there, it totally colors your opinion differently than if you don't have that information. And so somebody like you that has been given the gift to have all of this information, to be the patriot you are, we're very grateful to you. Uh, Robert has questions as well, and then we're going to turn it over to the, uh, the audience. Uh, and it's a real honor for us to have you, sir. And thanks again. Uh, can you can you hold up the book? Because I'm a little bit of a promotional person. Let's let's bring the book up and put it up there because I don't have my book. There you go. OK, so <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll be out there uh, uh, promoting that book for you, sir. But go ahead, Robert. Well, thank you, Anthony. It's always easy to follow you when I send you my questions and you take half of them up front. So, I mean, this is a... Well, just I was going to go. I was going to take... This is the way the partnership me, works with Anthony Johnson. Well, I, don't, I don't know why you would give... I mean, you know, I know you're smarter than me. That's why I would have been cheating off you in law school. But I mean, what can I tell you? You don't, don't give well, me the questions. Perfect segue, because I do want to thank John before I begin with the questions of, you know, we have something in common. The president uh, went to Fordham and then John decided to pass him on to my alma mater at Wharton. So that at least we have one thing in common that we all went to the same school, <laughs> I guess, uh, together. So thanks for that handoff. I'm going to start a little, something a little lighter, John. What do you, you, you're a very serious guy. I, I think that's what we love about you because when we listen to you, we know you're serious. And so we have to actually listen because the detail matters. But what do you do for fun? <laughs> well, um, after 33 plus years in the government, um, I, quite frankly, um, didn't spend as much time with family. I know that's almost a trite you know, explanation about why people, you know, retire from the government. But I missed out a lot in terms of children and grandchildren, as well as on culture. So I'm catching up, you know, reading books. I'm trying to get into better shape. Uh, I tried to exercise, you know, every morning when I was a CIA director. But now, I, you know, as I'm getting up there in, in age, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I am, uh, you know, watching my diet and, and uh, walking. The question was, what do you do for fun? Well, those things are fun for me. <laughs> really, they really are. And, and uh, just and spending time with family. And, That's great. And, and as a grandfather, there's nothing that beats being a grandfather. I Good can tell you. you. It's a lot of fun. So I, I want to kind of take from where Anthony went. We're going to go a little deeper. But, you know, you mentioned you worked for three Republican and three Democratic presidents. And even though you had disagreements, you respected them and they respected you. Otherwise, you would not have lasted. Anthony and I started this business um, going into our second year called Strategic Worldviews. That is nonpartisan, bipartisan, however you want to explain it. We have Austin Goolsby and Glenn Hubbard. We have Steve Moore and Jason Furman. We've done meetings with you and Susan Rice and General Kelly 
and um, Tom Bossett, all walks of life. And HR McMaster is gonna be following you. And so I guess the first thing that we wanna know is when did, what was the turn of bipartisanship? When did it just start separating where literally everyone goes to their corners? Yeah, it's, a, it's a good question. Given that I was in the intelligence community and business for many years, I always enjoyed being able to go to the intelligence committees on the Hill in the 90s and even after you know, 9-11 attacks, especially because there was this strong bipartisanship, as you say, maybe even nonpartisanship. Whether they were a Democrat or Republican, they would hang their political affiliation at the door and then really deal with national security issues. Unfortunately, and I haven't been able to put my finger on it, and I think part of it is the result of the explosion in that digital environment, and so much information is going out there, that that bipartisanship really has diminished because the, the fringes on both sides are pulling people away from the center. You know, if you look at the number of, of um, seats uh, in, the, in the House and the Senate, you know, very few of them are really competitive. They're either red or blue. It's because they have been pulled to those ends of the spectrum. And I really do believe that there is a need to have, get back to the days where a Tip O'Neill and a Ronald Reagan can actually sit down and have real disagreements, but also raise a glass together and recognize that they have a larger responsibility than just to their party or to themselves. They have the responsibility to their country. And unfortunately, I think there have been too many craven politicians over the last decade, two decades, that really have just intentionally misrepresented the facts in order to promote their personal agendas, their partisan agendas, and it is to the detriment of this country. But we see it not just here in the United States, but also in other countries around the world. You see a lot of these fringe groups in Europe um, that are able to now become, you know, in, in France, for example, Marie Le Pen, you know, it was, you know, polling in the single digits, six or eight percent, but then she's able to challenge, you know, the, the, the party is able to challenge for the, uh, the, to be ascendant in the government. And so I think we're seeing this phenomenon glo- globally, that there is this polarization taking place, partly it's a result, I think, of reactions to globalization. Globalization, I, I believe, is inevitable, and it really has bettered, you know, society around the globe. But there are a lot of people who are reacting adversely to the increasing intrusion, as they see it, of foreign workers, of of foreign influences, of migrant populations, and that has led to greater nativism and uh, a xenophobia that really has led a lot of people to have this adverse uh, attitude toward things that are new and progressivism. Uh, at the same time, there are a lot of influences that come in and that are, you know, not, not respecting maybe some of those national identities and national traditions. So I think part of this is this revolutionary evolution in yep. terms of the global landscape that really is pitting sort of the old world against the new world. And again, and I, I think some demagogues to, are taking advantage of it. it. That segues into the next question pretty easily. I don't want to make it nationalism and protectionism versus globalization. I want to actually center it where we are today. So how do you look at, how should we look at a Trump reelection um, versus a Biden presidency from a national security perspective? They cannot be more stark, it seems. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, having worked closely with Joe Biden throughout the Obama administration for eight years, uh, he is somebody who is deeply experienced in a lot of these foreign affairs and national security issues. 
you know, Joe Biden is somebody who would like to bring our troops home from places like Afghanistan, Iraq. He has seen the, the horrors of war up close. And I, I do think he doesn't believe that the United States should be involved in the military adventurism that actually got us involved in Iraq. Afghanistan was a much different situation. But the thing that I think Joe Biden will do differently than Donald Trump has done, which is to really reach out to our partners and allies around the world and to recognize that the United States is strong because of those relationships, because we have fulfilled that leadership role. You know, the mantra of America first, America first that Donald Trump issues really is quite shrill to the ears of a lot of our partners and allies around the world, because it makes it appear the United States is going to try to advantage itself to the disadvantage of others. So I think one of the first things that um, Joe Biden would do is to really try to get those relationships back on track and also try to deal honestly and directly with the issues such as North Korea's nuclear program that you know, has not been you know, reversed, uh, continues to develop and grow. Uh, I think Joe Biden will deal with, with China in a very forceful manner, but I think he's going to be much more uh, surgical and much more strategic as opposed to, you know, blunt instruments. So, you know, I think Joe Biden will, will bring a different approach. I think if Donald Trump gets reelected, uh, he'll continue along this path uh, with, you know, the obsequiousness toward Vladimir Putin, uh, as well as trying to demonstrate a muscularity uh, with little, quite frankly, little substance behind it. Well, you brought up Putin, so I'm going to stay with that. Um, you were working with the Obama administration during mid-2016. Um, in retrospect, do you think the public should have been more aware of the Russian interference on the election? And when you look at um, kind of the moves made by James Comey that seem to have really changed the outcome by many, uh, by many perspectives, not all. Um, kind of bring us back to that time and maybe if there was a, call it a, a, a mulligan, what would you have done? Not you, but what do you think should have been done? Well, it's an important issue and it's still living with us now. Uh, and I devote a couple of chapters in the book to it. Um, and it was quite evident, I think, to people within the Obama administration, as well as to the American public, that Russia was trying to interfere in the election. It was in the media, it was in the press, uh, and you know, Donald Trump's public calls for Russia to find Hillary's emails, he made no secret of his relationship and, and interest in having Russia assist him in the election. Uh, it was a very, very difficult time. And we were very concerned about possible interference uh, by Russia in the technical infrastructure of the, our electoral system. And so we were trying to understand whether or not they were going to do something to try to affect the vote tallies. We saw that they were navigating into certain state systems. Uh, we didn't know whether they were going to try to pull down the voter registration rolls or not. But what was much more uh, impactful, as well as insidious, were their information operations. All the things that they did in social media, things that I have learned about a lot since I left government, in terms of the personas they would put out there on Facebook and Twitter, you know, misrepresent themselves as Americans and, and really influencing the, the attitudes and views of American citizens. And I do think it did affect votes by what they did. I, you know, I talk in the book also about you know, Jim Comey's decisions to you know, have that press conference as well as to notify Congress that he was basically reopening the investigation just about a week or two before the election. 
And I have tremendous respect for Jim Comey. I never saw a partisan bone in his body in terms of you know, how he carried out his duties as FBI director. But you know, I, I disagree with those decisions. Uh, sure, 2020 hindsight is you know, much more you know, sort of greater fidelity. But um, I don't think he should have done those things. Uh, I don't know all the things that he took into account when he made those decisions. But I do think that on the eve of an election, and given Department of Justice guidelines that really should not do anything uh, on the, you know, in the period of time before a general so does election. That, does, does that correlate to the idea that um, we should or should not have, you know, proliferated what was happening, um, you know, from the possibility of what Russia was doing? Because it was really kind of, you know, push, pushed under the carpet. Well, there were public announcements by the Obama administration about Russia's attempts to interfere in the election in in October. Uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Jay Johnson and Director of National Intelligence James Clapper came out with a statement about it. We did send messages to the Russians. I think I was the first U.S. official to brace the Russians when I spoke to the, the head of their internal security services in early August of 2016 and told them to knock it off. And I don't know whether or not our uh, warnings to them dissuaded them from doing more than what they did. And in the book, I talk about some of the options we considered, including rattling the Russia's, Russia's cyber cage. Yeah. Everybody thinks that China and Russia have much greater cyber capabilities than the United States. That's not true. We have tremendous capability. But on the eve of a hotly contested presidential election, did we want to engage in a cyber war with Russia? Because they could escalate that. And their objective was to undermine the integrity of the U.S. election. And by doing that, by, by doing something on the cyber front, would that have prompted the Russians to actually increase what they did? And President Obama did not want to do anything that was going to interfere one way or the other in that election. So I think we have to still learn a lot about how we can deter these types of attacks, whether they be technical attacks or information operation attacks. Because I think, you know, our foundations, the foundations of our democracy really depend on So, John, I, I want to carry from that to today. Um, one of the top streaming movies um, is called The Social Dilemma. And maybe kind of how you learn things post-CIA, I would probably say I'm learning things as well with having, you know, kids in their 20s. The, the documentary really goes after kind of internet privacy and the lack thereof. And so when you now think about Facebook and Twitter, one, should, should it be a more closed environment? Should it be regulated? You know, would you, should we even be on it? Like, you know, what do you recommend to your grandkids on Facebook, on Twitter? And, and you know, you don't have to go in detail about each of those, although we'd love to have you do that, but more, how do you look at social media and then the idea of we're giving away our privacy and our data? Well, Robert, this, this is the question for the 21st century and for our country. Um, how are we going to try to have the digital domain continue to advance our prosperity and our security and not undermine it? Because it is the environment where most human transactions and activities take place these days. The challenge is the digital domain is owned and operated by the private sector, about 80 or 85%. So what is the appropriate government role in that environment? What should the government be doing? And, and we see that the, you know, the Chinese and others really have this very authoritarian and suppressive you know, policy you know, toward you know, the internet. 
But here in this country, we really cherish the foundations of freedom and uh, freedom of speech and uh, privacy and civil liberties. There is a tension between those things on one side of the ledger and then security on the other. And so how is the government going to work with the private sector to try to better enhance the security of but that digital domain? you know that bank? news and newspapers, I mean, those are regulated. Well, 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 they are, yes. But I must tell you, and because when I was at the White House, cyber was in my portfolio. It's one thing in terms of the physical you know, world and uh, regulating things that you know, actually you can see and touch. That's why we have regulations, whether it deals with, you know, borders or uh, seaports or, or the, the physical media. When you start getting into that digital environment, it means so much is happening there. It's almost like a wild, wild west. And I'm glad to see that the Facebooks and the Twitters now have less hubris than they did earlier when they thought they were not being exploited. But I don't say they have total hubris, <laughs> you know, they, right. they, but they, they, what they're doing now is I think recognizing that they are being exploited by malactors, whether they be foreign or domestic, and they need to tidy up their own systems and do more self-regulation. And I think we see more and more of that. But I have long called for a national commission, just like we had after the 9-11 attacks, yeah. so that there's a, a, a national commission, bipartisan commission, independent commission, that is going to look at this issue of the digital env- domain bringing together the futurists, the technologists, the engineers, the businessmen, the bankers, government officials, and others to try to do what we can to ensure that that environment is going to thrive for our children and grandchildren. But I must tell you, there's still a lot of stuff that goes on there. You're on Twitter. Are you on any other social media platforms? No, no. And the only reason why I went on Twitter is because I felt that Donald Trump was just almost monopolizing that. I didn't want to cede that environment to him. Yeah, but me no, too. I'm, I'm on Twitter only because Scaramucci used to go after me when he was with Trump, so I had to do the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we well deserved it. We back he after was similar that way. Yeah. <laughs> you, get, you get fake news, Director Brennan, even on Assault Talk. Uh, <laughs> Robert, let, because we, we're going to run out of time right. here, let's ask a, a couple of these questions that have come in, if you don't uh, mind, Ambassador. This, I mean, uh, Director, this is a great one. Uh, how do we restore the reputation of these great agencies, the CIA and the FBI, uh, assuming that you can get to a post-Trump administration? Well, I'd like to think that my former colleagues at CIA, FBI, NSA, other places are continuing to do their work. Unfortunately, I think there has been some people at the top of these organizations that have abused their authorities, you know, the William Barrs, the John Ratcliffe's, the Richard Grinnells and others. But I do think that the rank and file, the women and men who sacrifice so much for their fellow citizens really feel strongly about that mission. And what you need for in the Biden administration is for President Biden, the Vice President Harris, as well as other senior officials of both parties to really highlight the importance of their work, as well as the confidence they have that these individuals are going to carry out their work and their mission, irrespective of whatever political party might be in power and irrespective of what their own personal political sentiments might be. And so I, I do believe that there, it's a resilient uh, environment. So, so uh, uh, Director Brennan, I'm going to ask you for a little bit of a lightning round here because we've got a series of questions and I, I want to keep you to our schedule. Uh, but I think these are very interesting questions, but let's do a little bit of a lightning round. Do you think Saudi Arabia will follow the UAE and Bahrain in normalizing relations with Israel? 
Um, I think ultimately, yes. Um, it all depends on uh, what happens, I think, in this presidential election. Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who basically controls the reins of power in Saudi Arabia, is very close to Donald Trump and Jared Kushner. And uh, I, I do think that uh, a Joe Biden is going to take a different approach to Saudi Arabia, particularly to MBS, given MBS's responsibility for the horrific killing and dismemberment of Jabal Khashoggi. Okay, and uh, what about, uh, what is your opinion of the election, sir, based on your in, in intelligence and your life experience? Is it possible to steal an election in the United States? <clears throat> steal, no, I, I do think that uh, Joe Biden is going to have many more votes and more electoral votes uh, as a result of the election on November 3rd. I do think that Donald Trump and you know, his advisors are going to pursue legal challenges and try to bring it up to the Supreme Court. I do believe that this election is going to be more lopsided than maybe some people think. And the lopsided nature of that, I think, will basically undercut their ability to present these, these legal challenges. But I didn't think uh, Donald Trump was going to be elected in 2016. You know, I didn't follow domestic politics at the time. Uh, it shows that uh, I, I didn't uh, appreciate the extent to which Donald Trump was able to um, hoodwink uh, so many Americans in the vote. Uh, the, the threat assessments, are, it's, it, it's a, a month after 9-11, uh, the 19th anniversary. Uh, your threat assessment of domestic terror here in the United States from foreign adversaries or domestic adversaries for that matter, what's your threat assessment? Well, I am very concerned about some of these homegrown groups um, of whether they be on the right or the left. I think there is a real problem with white supremacist groups here in this country, the QAnons and others. And I do know that there are a number of foreign actors that try to stoke those fires of uh, violence and extremism here in the States. But we also see it on the left as well. And so I think the Bureau, FBI, has its work cut out for it to try to identify those foreign links as well as the sources of financing, because a lot of these groups really do rely on uh, the financing that may come in from abroad, as well as from various domestic quarters. Just, just a, a question on QAnon, sir. Uh, I don't know if you've read the book Active Measures by Thomas Ridd. It was recommended to me by uh, General McMaster. But when you read the book, it feels like QAnon is inspired by active measures. Is it a, is it a Russian intelligence movement? Well, what do you think is going on with QAnon? I don't think it, it was um, initiated or incubated by, by Russia. Um, I, I, I do think there are domestic players here uh, who start this, but then uh, foreign actors like Russia, specifically Russia, particularly since there are a lot of folks within the Russian establishment who have very right-wing uh, sentiments themselves, um, provided support and enabled the growth of QAnon. Uh, but I, I just... There, when I was in the government, uh, there were enough uh, spots within this country that uh, were the source of uh, right-wing extremist uh, white supremacist movements. Uh, last question, I'm gonna turn it back to uh, Robert. Is Afghanistan, and your knowledge of the region, is Afghanistan ever going to be what we would describe in the West, a stable, democracy, less tribal, and more integrated into the global community? Or is Afghanistan going to be what it has always been, just a very difficult uh, spot in the world? I'd like to think we're going to see incremental progress in Afghanistan over the coming decade or two. 
but anybody who has illusions that you know, we're going to see Western-style democracy break out in Afghanistan, I think, are just sort of deluding themselves. During the Arab Spring, when there was a lot of hope, including the Obama administration, that democracy was going to, you know, develop in a lot of these countries, um, democracy is not like a light switch. You know, here we are 240 or so years after, you know, our independence, and we still are working on some of the democratic, you know, processes and, and foundations. So I think Afghanistan is going to continue to go through some tough times, but I like to think that it's going to be a lot of blocking and tackling, and you're going to be grinding out, not yardage, but footage, I think, in the coming uh, years. Thank you. Um, just to go back to where we are today, um, if you were the director of the CIA during this COVID crisis, um, how would you think of it, whether the importance of reopening, the lack thereof, or the need for protocols, the impact of security. How would you think of it? And because right now, the way we think of it, there is no protocols, which is why it opens, it closes. The cases are higher today than they were Memorial Day. There are more deaths today than they were Memorial Day. It seems that the direction is, is getting worse, not better. And then you have the White House have their own super spreader. So... Yeah, in fact, when I was at the White House as President Obama's assistant for Homeland Security, it was when we had the H1N1 pandemic in April and the rest of the, the 2009 year. And it was quite a challenge. And we had to go to school on trying to find out exactly what we needed to do first, how we needed to rely on the medical experts and data. But one of the things that I really appreciated from President Obama was he told us to rely on the medical experts rely on the data, ensure that that is going to be the foundation for policies and guidance that we give out, but also make sure that we're not confusing the public and that there needs to be coherence. And one of the things that I really criticize this administration for is the lack of coherence in its communications to the American public and how it undercuts the guidance from CDC and clearly they want to put a positive spin on things. So, you know, when I was director of CIA, if we had some type of health crisis, I want to make sure that I understood exactly what the recommended guidelines were or how we should, you know, deal with this, the challenge, the medical challenge, what should be the protocols you point out, how we should rotate, you know, staff distance and making sure that we're doing everything possible to minimize the impact of this virus. But there does seem to be a, a, you know, some chaos and confusion within the executive branch. And this is when the American people really look toward leadership. In the aftermath of 9-11, it didn't matter if you were a Democrat or Republican. George Bush, when he stood in the embers of 9-11 of the attacks at the World Trade Center with the bullhorn, he was speaking to all Americans. And all Americans rallied behind the Bush administration to get al-Qaeda. The same thing should be happening now. And unfortunately, all that's happened is greater divisions among ourselves and even within the medical community. So I, I do think coherence of, of uh, approach and, and communication is critically, critically important. So I'm gonna play a little devil's advocate here, but it's not really me, so I'll explain it to you. So Please. there's this book, Three Seconds to Midnight. Um, and actually it was Steve Bannon who recommend, recommended to us that some of us read it, so that's a different story. But it's written, it came out in November of last and, year. And so he read, he read it anyway, John. I just want to make sure you know that. Okay? It, it, it's, it's, it's written by two epidemiologists. And what they will say to those politicians and those agencies is that after the AIDS epidemic took place, 
that CDC and NIH um, started starving the idea of viruses and how to look at viruses and that this was very much in our face that out of China with or Africa with rats and bats that these viruses would come. But instead we put all our money towards diabetes and cancer research. And that this could have, we should have seen this coming because we were not prepared for it. And this came out, like I said, less than a year ago. Is, do you feel that there's truth to that in a way or do you feel um, or not? <laughs> Well, I, I think that the H1N1 uh, pandemic in 2009 really gave us a lot of lessons about how to deal then with uh, Ebola and, and other types of uh, health challenges, medical challenges around the world. Um, and so, you know, have we done everything possible to prepare for the next, you know, medical challenge or pandemic? Probably not, because it requires a lot of investment in terms of contingency planning. And unfortunately, uh, especially the way our government works uh, and with election cycles, there is not that continuity, I think, of, of effort uh, that is required to deal with the multiple challenges that we face the country. And there are so many out there. So you have terrorism, you have proliferation, you have Russia, you have trade, you have China, you have pandemics, you have health issues, you have climate. And one of the real challenges for any administration is the prioritization that you give to these issues and how you then allocate resources. But clearly, I think on the health front, and when I think about and I know about some of the various initiatives around the globe on genetic engineering and other types of things in the biological front, it really worries me because there is tremendous sophistication out there and tremendous opportunity for people to use the scientific knowledge for, for bad purposes. And that's where I think there needs to be, again, an approach, a bipartisan, nonpartisan approach to these issues so that we don't allow the, the most recent you know, shiny object to distract us from taking care of the multitude of issues and challenges that we face as a country. And again, going forward, you know, I mentioned cyber in the digital realm. That wasn't an issue for us 50 years ago. Now it is, you know, one of the most important issues. Climate change, you know, what are we doing on a, on a regular basis? So just like pandemics and viruses, you know, what can we do now so that when something like this occurs, we are better positioned to deal with it? And I still think we have a lot to go, a ways to go before we're, we're better uh, positioned as a nation to deal with, with these issues. Great. So this is my think, last question. Do I have time for one more, Anthony, or not? Yeah, let's, let's spit it in quickly, though, because I want to yeah. keep him on time. So today, one thing Anthony and I talk about and all our clients is that systemic, systemic inequality is in our face. Health inequality, wealth inequality, educational inequality, and race inequality. And we're seeing it every which way in the country today. Um, how would you look at that from a national security perspective when literally every aspect of our life today is showing that this recovery is really a, a, a K-shaped recovery of the haves and have nots. And it's literally separating more than we could ever imagine just from a security perspective. Yeah, well, that's not an easy question and it doesn't have a short answer to it. I think you're absolutely right. Inequality across so many areas you know, wealth, income, opportunity, education, you name it. It's fueling a lot of these problems, again, not just here in the United States, but also globally. 
both within countries as well as between countries. And so I, maybe what we're facing right now with COVID and the economic downturn and this recovery that is quite bifurcated, as you point out, maybe it's going to bring into starker relief, relief the, the challenges and the problems here that we need to try to course correct. You know, democracy and capitalism have served us well over the last two centuries, and I am a firm advocate of both. But I do think we need to think through how democracy and capitalism are going to thrive in the 21st century, given the ecosystem that they operate within now. And just because something might have worked 100 years ago or 200 years ago does not mean that it doesn't need some adaptation. So I do think the issue of inequality, especially inequality of opportunity, is one of the most important issues that I do hope our government and other governments will address. Thank you. Anthony? Well, uh, Ambassador Brennan, thank you so much for joining us on Salt Talks. I hope we can get you back after the election and uh, have a little bit of a debriefing on where we think the world is going. Uh, for me personally, sir, I'm glad that you're not Pope Owen the first. Okay, because something tells me you would have been a really strict Orthodox Catholic Pope. Okay, just that, getting that vibe from you. And so, you know, I'm, um, I'm enjoying you as our uh, former CIA director. And I just want to thank you so much for your service to the country and your amazing patriotism, sir. You're a true patriot, and, uh, and we're big fans of yours, sir. Thank you again. Well, thank you again, Anthony, for the kind words, and thank you for what you're doing today and this invitation. I really appreciate it. You take care. Right, and good luck with the book. Let's hold the book up yeah. one more time. I know, I know, <laughs> see, I usually do this, but I don't have a copy of it. There it's you officially, go, Undaunted by John Brennan. Officially uh, released tomorrow. So. Right. Bookstore starting tomorrow. Okay, well, God bless you, sir. Best of luck with the book. And Robert and I and Joe, we'll see you soon. And, uh, that's it for Saw Talk.